Turn with me again to Mark chapter 12. We will again read the verses that we read last week, verses 17, 13 through 17. Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in their words, his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Render the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now last week we looked at this passage and we spent most of our time on the phrase, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Today I want us to look at the latter part of that verse, give to God the things that are God. Now we saw last week how these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, came to Jesus and they thought that they had set him up by asking this question there in verse 14. They thought that if Jesus answered the question, By saying, pay Caesar, then he would turn the people against him. If he answered the question, do not pay Caesar, then he would be arrested for insurrection. In verse 15, we see that Jesus answered this question with great wisdom. When he replied to them, as we read just a moment ago, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. His wisdom is not only seen in this verse, but we know that it is seen throughout the Gospels. We saw it when they were, or he was asked the question, by what authority do you do these things? And of course he turned around and he asked them a question, and they would not answer his question, so he said, neither will I answer your question. We will also see the question that is asked in verse 18 through 27, When the Sadducees asked him about heaven and marriage, of course, they did not believe in heaven, so that's the reason why they asked him the question, and we will see how he answered their question. We will see how he answered the question of the scribe when he asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And we will see that there are many other questions that they ask him in this three-day period of time, and he answers all of their questions very wisely. During his trial, he is asked question after question, and we see his heavenly wisdom revealed. Likewise, we need to learn to have the wisdom of Christ. We need to study Christ. We need to have the mind of Christ, as Scripture teaches us. James speaks to this in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. We will not read that passage, but it speaks of heavenly wisdom. And I would encourage you today, if you haven't read that passage lately, to read it this afternoon and study that passage so that you might understand what heavenly wisdom is. 
Now, before Jesus answered, he revealed to them that he knew why they were asking this question, why they were testing him. These were dishonorable men. They were deceitful. They were hypocrites. And he exposes them. There will be times when we likewise have to deal with people like that. And Jesus teaches us how to respond. That's one reason why we have the scripture, so that we might learn how to live in this world, how to respond to other individuals. Those who love their sin, those who have power, will do just about anything to destroy those who get in their way. So don't be surprised when you stand for righteousness that people will stand against you and that people will attack you. But be prepared to answer them with heavenly wisdom just as Christ did. When religious leaders have their power threatened, they will do just about anything to attain it, retain it. And that's what we see in this particular passage. Now, Jesus clearly states that Christians have an obligation, a responsibility to be obedient to the government, to pay taxes. We looked at that last week. If you were not with us last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon so that you will see what is our obligation to the government. But yet we also see a far greater important thing than giving to Caesar, and that is giving to God the things that are God's. And that's what I want us to dwell on this morning because this is of utmost importance. I wasn't going to tack it on as our last point last Sunday because we'd have been here for another hour. So that's the reason why I waited till this Sunday to deal with this particular phrase. So what does Jesus mean when he says, and to God, the things that are God's? Well, there's three truths that I want to see from this passage so that we might be obedient to this exhortation that is given by our Lord and Savior. First, why are we to give to God the things that are God? Well, the Pharisees, we see they balked at the very mention of Caesar and paying Caesar his due. But far worse... They were completely ignorant of what it meant to give to God the things that were due to Him. I mean, the most obvious example is their refusal to honor God's only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that stood before them. They would not honor Him. They would not praise Him. And He was due that honor and He was due that praise. I mean, honoring Jesus Christ is honoring God, and they did not understand that. They did not see that. Jesus had taught them that, and they dismissed it. Jesus said all the way back in John chapter 5, verse 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Then as we looked at what transpired in the transfiguration, these words were said. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. 
Now, this was the very voice of God that the apostles heard. And they, of course, shared this later, how they were to honor God by honoring the Son. Everyone owes God obedience. The great commandment is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So you honor God by loving the Lord. Who is the Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now Jesus challenged them with this most important question that they had to think about in dealing with image. He said, whose image is on the coin? Well, it was Caesar's. Now, of course, the next question is, in whose image were they made? And, of course, we know the answer to that. God's image. They were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. They had lived in the promised land. They had received the covenants and the oracles of God. They had the temple. They had the priest. They had the altar. They had been taught about redemption and and forgiveness of sin. They had heard about the promised Messiah that was to come and His kingdom would be established. And there was nothing more important or fascinating than the Lord being their shepherd, their refuge, their strength, and their reward. God's Son stood in their midst. He who had stilled the storm, healed the leopard, made the lame to walk, caused the blind to see, raised the dead, and preached the glorious truths of God. This was the most important time in all of history as they stood in His midst. They had the wonderful privilege of seeing God incarnate. And how do these religious and political leaders respond? Well, they respond by seeking to entrap Jesus. By asking this question, they are seeking to extinguish the light of the world. They stood before the Son of God, and the question that they ask Him is about taxation. I mean, if you were able to stand before the Son of God, would that be on your mind? I hope not. I mean, there's a lot of other questions I would like to ask Jesus beside anything dealing with taxation. But yet that's what was on their mind. And of course, that was on their mind because they thought that was a question that would entrap him. And Jesus responded by turning their mind from Caesar to God. Give to God the things that are God. In other words, he puts them to the test. They had put him to the test, but he turns around and he puts them to the test. And shows them what is really important. Jesus is saying, consider the living God. How magnificent He is. And cry out, behold your God. And that's what we seek to do. Hopefully, if you have children, that's what you're seeking to instill in your children's life. Helping them to understand how great God is. 
That's why we encourage you to use the children's boys and girls catechism to catechize your children, to teach them about God, asking them the questions. If you're not doing it, I encourage you to do it. We have the books and we will hand you the book free and you can catechize your children. They need to know who God is. They need to know how magnificent God is. They need to know His character. They need to learn things about God and it's there in that particular little book. The shorter catechism says God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. In other words, God is glorious. God is holy. Fearfully, He is to be praised. That's why we sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And He has made all things and brings about redemption of His people who trust in Him through Christ alone. It is this God that man is to give to. The God that made man, the God that created all things, the God that saves man from his sin. And there is so much to say about the mystery of godliness. God made or God manifested in the flesh. Paul could not get over it. We see that, of course, in the epistle of Ephesians and what Paul says. Of course, the entire book of Ephesians is directed to this wonderful manifestation of Christ. But he says in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I'm, I'm worshiping Him. I bow before Him for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in inner, inner man, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the depth, I mean the width and the depth, length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ, which passes on knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly according to that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I mean, Paul just goes on and on and on praising Jesus Christ for who He is and what He has done. God was manifested in the flesh. Think of it. As Christians, we should be absolutely obsessed with Christ. As we think about who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished for us. And that's what Paul is saying there in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul understood that this world was not his home. He longed for the world to come. He longed for a better place. But as he lived in this sinful world, he was salt. He was light. He walked by grace and he kept his eyes on Jesus Christ. And he sums it up in Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do all things without complaining or disputing. 
that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as light in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. This is our calling as Christians. We are not to entertain unrealistic hope of success in this life, but we are simply to offer our lives as a living sacrifice to God, allowing Him to use us as He best sees fit. The kingdom of God is not going to come with our effort but by the power of God, by His grace, by His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is what brings about godly homes, Bible-believing churches, and God-honoring worship. Involvement in evangelistic and mission activities are a result of the Holy Spirit working in and through our lives. But why are we involved in such? Because that is what God has called you and me to do, and it's our joy to do it. Now second, what are the things that are God's? Jesus says to give to God the things that are His. So we must know what the things are. Listen to what John MacArthur says. The denarius belonged to Caesar and bore His image. People belong to God and bear His image. The coin can be rendered to Caesar in obedience to temporal law. But obedience and honor is to be rendered to God in light of divine law. So we have seen that there are things that belong to Caesar. But those things have His image on it. But there are also things that belong to God, and those things have His image on it. You and me. You and me belong to God. He created us. You have been made in His image, in His likeness. Jeff Thomas says, Man can only truly know himself as he knows God. Without knowing God, he will focus all his attention on himself and live in rebellion to God and not give to God what belongs to God. Now that's the majority of the people that we see. They are focused on themselves. They are not focused on God. They live in rebellion to God and therefore they do not give to God that which belongs to God. Have you acknowledged God's right over you and all of your possessions? Have you given your life to God? What do you think when you sing, All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at His feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsake me, Jesus. Take me now. 
all. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. What do you think about when you sing that? Does it come from your heart? Do you mean it? Or just something that you sing because everybody else sings? But yet that is what we are to give to God. Our all. Jesus pointed out that Caesar has things and God also has things. Caesar had power, but God also has power. His power is almighty power. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his final sermon at Westminster Chapel 18 months before he died. The power, of, the power of God is the power of our maker. The power of our judge eternal. And we are all moving, as is the whole cosmos, in the direction of a final inquiry at last judgment. Our destiny is in the hands of God. He has power. After we have died, not only to judge us, But if we have disobeyed Him and refused Him to cast us into an everlasting and eternal punishment, I am not the one saying this. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who talks about the place where the worms does not die and the fire is not squelched. My friend, do you and I as Christians contemplate as we thought ought to about the power of the everlasting, eternal God. We should be humbled under His mighty hand and serve Him with reverence and godly fear. Not dance and joke and merely sing before Him. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. It's sad that so many on this day gather together and they do exactly what He says. They dance and joke and merely sing. And they're dancing and joking and merely singing before in a consuming fire, is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. See, there's a contrast between the benefits of these two powers that are given. We pay taxes to Caesar and we receive some benefit. Protection, services, health care, military, roads, education, and on and on. But those things cannot compare to the benefits that we receive from God. Some foolishly, foolishly ask, what can God give me? Well, first and foremost, God sent His only begotten Son into the world to rescue sinners from hell. That should be enough said. We should say there's nothing else that we need. That's our greatest problem has been met. But that's not all that He gives us. He gives us so much more. He gives us glorious benefits. God Himself becomes our Heavenly Father. He begins to pour out His blessings upon us. He gives us peace of conscience. That we are no longer His enemies, but now we are loved by Him. He also 
removes all of our sin. So therefore, judgment is removed. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us so that we become more and more like Christ as the old man is put off and the old new man is put on. But that also produces in our life spiritual fruit for God's glory, as it says in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 26. And He also gives us spiritual gifts to serve in His body. Even more, because we are children of God, then we are heirs of God Himself. We are joint heirs with with Christ. Oh, the blessings that we as Christians have are untold, immeasurable. And due to this salvation, we have a new outlook on life and are given a new desire to please God. We say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We should see our serving God as an honor, a privilege. It should never be considered a burden or something that we dread. I was talking to someone just this week who is in a very large church and and they were telling me, even though the church is large, how difficult it is to get people to serve in the church. You've heard those saying that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in the church and 80% of the people do the 20% of the work. Well, this should not be the case in the church. Everyone should be using their spiritual gift in the church, be serving the Lord with gladness, and this is not the case, then there is something that is wrong with you spiritually. Because God saves you to use you. Thirdly, how do we give to God the things that are His? This very same question was asked by David in the passage that we read in our Old Testament reading this morning. In Psalms 116, verse 12, David says, What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits toward me? Now David is saying, Lord, I would like to pay you back for all the blessings that you have blessed me with. Now that should be the desire of all Christians, right? Again, as we think about the untold blessings, the glorious benefits that God has given us, it should lead us to have this same desire that David had. I mean, we cannot count all the blessings that God blesses us with. All God's mercies are beyond our total comprehension. There are so many in simply a single day that we could hardly count them. And David understood that. And that's why David said, What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits toward me? But the Bible often speaks about what we should give to God. It speaks about how we should give worship to God, 
how we should give tithes and offerings to God, how we should give our time to Him, how we should live our lives that He has called us to live as His holy people. All of this we are to give to the Lord. But God, by His Holy Spirit, says an amazing thing through David in this passage. God doesn't ask for anything in this passage, but instead God says something that really catches us off guard. Look at what He says there in verse 13. I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Now that's interesting. What is the Lord saying through David? Well, he's telling David to take some more of what has made you who you are. I have got more to give to you. I want you to drink from the cup of salvation. Now, I hope you understand that we do not deserve the cup of salvation. We deserve what? We deserve the cup of wrath that Jesus willingly drank. The cup of wrath which included Gethsemane and Calvary. By drinking the cup of wrath, Jesus bore all of our sins and guilt and paid the penalty. With His stripes we are healed. Our sins are remembered no more. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. I mean, when we meditate upon these truths, what God has done for us, how God has made us righteous, I mean, we cannot totally comprehend that as God looks at us, not only does He look at us that all of our sins are removed, but He looks upon us as though we have never sinned. I can't comprehend that. But that's what the Scripture says. That we are in the righteousness of Christ and we have the righteousness of Christ and therefore when God looks at us who are His children, He looks at us as though we have never sinned. What a marvelous truth. And as David thinks upon this, he wants to give God back something. So his response is what shall I render to the Lord? And the Lord says, I've got something I want you to take. I want you to take some more of what I have already given you. Do you see it? What he says there? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Now, of course, this is speaking of sanctification. How God sanctifies us. So he offers David more of the cup of salvation, which is sweet fellowship in communion with God. Eternal life. Assurance of salvation. Assurance that all my sins are forgiven, even though I know that I'm sinful. And this enables us to say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
So the cup of salvation is Jesus continually filling your life with goodness, with forgiveness, with love, with every spiritual thing that you need at the right time. So the Lord says, as you think about what you would like to give to me, understand that I have not finished giving to you. I want you to have more. I want to give you more. As Hebrews 13.5 states, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with all such things as you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, Jesus Christ never asked us to live on our own resources. We cannot serve God in such a way. It is we are joined to Him. And that's what He explains even as He joins with the disciples after this event that's taking place here, when he goes into the upper room and he begins to teach them that he is the vine and they are the branches and being joined to him, that they will have him flowing into them. They will be receiving all that they need. As they lay their lives on the altar, they are able to give God what God desires. Now don't misunderstand me. God expects you and me to do our best. But our best begins where? Well, David says, I will pay my vows to the Lord. In other words, we must follow through with our commitment that we've made to God. Now, Paul greatly helps us in understanding this in the book of Romans. Very familiar passage to all of us. Of us, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. There he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul begins by calling Christians to live out God's purpose. And the basis of our service is the mercies of God. Therefore, we present our bodies, he says, as a living sacrifice. Now, what kind of service is this? What makes it, as he says there, a reasonable service? Well, the answer to the question is the word that is translated service. It relates to service of worship performed at the Old Testament tabernacle. He's making that comparison. It refers to that special act of worship that took place in the Old Testament of offering a sacrifice to God. Now, of course, after Christ came and was resurrected and ascended to heaven, what? There was no longer any need for sacrificing of animals. Christians were not to sacrifice animals. 
So we are told that we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now when you sacrificed an animal in the Old Testament, how many times did you sacrifice that animal? Doesn't take a genius to know the answer to that. Only one time. But the sacrifice that Paul is talking about here is a continuous sacrifice that we are to make to Christ daily. Now the second question, what makes this service so reasonable? Well, it's reasonable in light of God's mercy, as he puts it there in verse 12, the second part, by the mercies of God. Now, some say that Paul is referring here to because of our gratitude, as we've already talked about. David's talking about because of the gratitude, because of what you've done for me, God, I want to do something for you. I mean, we're so thankful that God has given us so many blessings that we want to give back to God what we can. Now, this is true, but it's not true from this verse. I mean, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. But notice Paul says, by the mercies of God. Some translations may say, in view. That's not a good translation. By is a better translation. A.T. Robinson, Greek scholar, translated this way. By means of the mercy of God. And this is helpful. See, due to God's mercies that you receive into your life, due to those mercies, you are enabled to give to God that which God desires. Do you understand that? If you don't have the mercies of God, if you have not received the mercies of God, then you're not able to give to God that which He desires. Mercies is the means by which you are able to consecrate yourself, by which you are able to offer yourself to God on the altar. So God's mercies, we can say, is the vehicle which carries us on in commitment to God. And this is emphasized in chapter 6 of Romans. Probably one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. It's dealing with sanctification. That God changes us and gives us a completely new identity at salvation. And what we have to understand, salvation is so much more than simply the forgiveness of sins and the promise of going to heaven. Now, I'm not saying forgiveness of sin and promise of going to heaven is not important. I'm saying salvation is so much more than that. We are taken out of Adam and we are put into Christ, receiving all of the mercies of God. Thomas Goodwin talks about this, and he says that God looks upon man as though there's two, Adam and Christ. And Adam has all of these hooks on his body, 
as a jot, more or less. Look at him as a, a jot. And hanging on all of these hooks are all of mankind. And then you have Christ that also has all these hooks. And what Christ does, He takes a man off the hook of Adam and He puts him on the hook of him. So He's removed from being in Adam to where He is in Christ to where He receives the mercies of God. Now what are these mercies? Well, those mentioned from Romans chapter 1 all the way up to Romans chapter 11. The mercies of forgiveness of sin. Justification by faith alone. Peace with God. Union with Christ. Freedom from sin and the law. Adoption as sons. Possession of the Spirit. Election to salvation. No separation from Christ's love. Inclusion of the Gentile. The future salvation of Israel. All of these are from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 11. Paul is talking about the mercies of God. And then he gets here to chapter 12, verse 1, and he gives the first exhortation in what they are to do. And he's saying, in light of all of these mercies that you have, he urges us to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Now, much preaching today places the emphasis on the how-tos. Do you know what I'm talking about? The how-tos. How to be a better person. How to treat your wife. How to raise your children. How to do this and how to do that of Christianity. Now I'm not saying the how-tos are not important. What I'm saying is that when you put the how-tos before the theology, then you end up with moralism and legalism. The emphasis must be upon theology, which forms the basis of the how-tos. Not grounding it in theology will lead it to legalism, which of course is not honoring to God. So instead, we must first see the glories of God's grace and mercies. And when we understand the glories of God's grace and mercy, then we are able to do our duties that He calls us to. We realize all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And when we realize all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, Paul then asks, what shall we do then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid... How shall we that are dead to sin live in it any longer? Romans 6, 1. So what is he saying here? If you've been changed by Christ, if Christ is in you, if you've been removed from Adam's hook to Christ's hook, then you won't live in sin. You will seek to live for God. And as we meditate upon God's manifest mercies, we are enabled by His grace to live the Christian life. This is what it meant when he says there, by the mercies of God. See, the mercies of God are the basis for us giving to God that which God desires. 
Listen to what John Murray says. The basis and string of sanctification are union with Christ. Ethic must rest upon the foundation of redemptive accomplishment. Did you hear what he's saying there? He's saying that our ethics, the way that we live, comes from our union with Christ. So how do we present our bodies a living sacrifice to God? It's our union with Christ. It's not in our own strength. It's in the strength that Christ gives to us, which is His grace, which is produced in us by His Spirit. So Paul is saying God's mercy enables us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. He doesn't want just your heart. He wants your entire being. A living sacrifice. You are set apart as holy unto His service. Isaac Watts wrote, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my home. Do you understand that? That the love of God in Christ Jesus is so amazing, so divine, that it demands my soul, my life, my all. Do you want to be able to give to God what is His? If you're a Christian, your response is, yes, yes then put yourself on the altar. Put yourself on the altar knowing that it's by God's mercy that He is able to bless you and use you for His glory. That as you put yourself on the altar, then you are able to worship Him rightly. You're able to study His Word rightly. And you're able to receive from Him all that you need so that you are able to give back to Him that which He requires. May we be faithful in giving to God that which is God's. Let's pray.
Lord. We come before you conscious of our unworthiness, conscious of the imperfections of our service, conscious of our guilt in thy holy sight. Lord, we pray that you would awaken us, open our eyes to the true battle. Help us to see the things as they are. Teach us to think. Deliver us from false traditions, from self-righteousness. Enable us to see the issues clearly and plainly. Reveal yourself and thy blessings to us. Don't let us in any way compromise the truth. Give us this blessing. We pray, Father, that you would continue to bless us with your mercies and grace. Bless us with your Holy Spirit that we may proclaim the whole truth to the world that we may proclaim the saving riches of Thy grace. Hear us and follow us from this place into our homes, into our workplace, into our activities. Help us to help others see this issue. And to pray for such power upon your word so that it would invade their life and bring them to the knowledge of their lostness and their need of Christ. Bless your people with knowledge and understanding so that we may proclaim your glory and continue to praise you throughout the rest of our life. We ask this. In thy son's dear, precious name, and for his sake and glory. Amen.